welcome to the Sam Gash Podcast, where I chat with peak performing individuals about their why, their how, the challenges that they face, as well as their vulnerabilities, strategies, and tactics. I believe these guests will empower you to find small ways every day to create a positive impact for you and your community. I want these shared insights to have the power of a positive ripple effect for lots of people and their communities. And in times such as these, I think we can all do with a little positivity in our lives. I'm your host, Sam Gash, a former corporate lawyer turned endurance athlete, international keynote speaker and social impact entrepreneur. I hope you enjoy. The last few years, I've really pushed myself on a fitness scale and and I've just wanted to become the best version of myself because what I've found over the years is there's a whole lot of opportunities I've missed out on because I wasn't ready, but I didn't know those opportunities were going to be there. And what I figured was if I could prepare my mind, my body and my ability for absolutely anything, that I was then open to every opportunity that came my way. Welcome to another episode of the Sam Gash Podcast. Now, if you've been following me on social media, you might have seen something about the Calendar Club, um, and you've probably seen me running a lot over the last month. The Calendar Club was an initiative set up by two guys in the States uh, with the premise that if 10,000 people signed up to the Calendar Club, they would donate 10,000 meals to frontline responders uh, in North America. And what you were required to do in the challenge is run the equivalent number of miles to the date. So on the 1st of April, you would run one mile. On the 15th of April, you would run 15 miles and so on to the 30th of April running 30 miles. It's it's a massive challenge, I won't lie. And at the beginning, I was, and really my whole way, I've been focusing on one day at a time, never thinking about what was the overall distance, but people keep now talking about the overall distance and it's over 750 kilometers in the month. Uh, And as you'd imagine, it gets exponentially uh, larger in mileage towards the end of the month. It's been a really interesting experience for me. Uh, The first thing is I obviously love to do challenges when it's tied to uh, a social initiative. And this one tapped to me because the relief run had a huge amount of support um, by those in North America. And for those who don't know about the relief run, it was during the Australian bushfires this year, uh, myself and a friend, Nick Davidson, created an initiative where people could run a virtual half marathon or five kilometre run anywhere, anytime over a certain weekend. And all the money that was raised would go as a donation to the Australian Red Cross. Now, over 40% of the registered participants, and we had over 20,000 in total, were from the US and Canada. And so when I saw this, I was like, well, I feel this is, you know, my way of providing service back um, where it's really needed. Uh, And on the flip side, there's always a personal reason why you take on these challenges. And for me, it's been a really long time since I have felt the love of the long run. Since having a child, I've been very focused on short, sharp, efficient runs, um, which has helped me get faster as a runner. But I haven't been doing like those 20 kilometer plus runs that I used to do, you know, week in, week out. And so I can safely say that I have now returned to the long run. And, and what it reminds me is you don't always love a long run. Some days it feels great. Um, particularly where I live, it's an amazing to be out in nature and amongst the trees and it's autumn, it's, it's beautiful. But other times it's a bit of a battle. It's a battle to get out of the house. It's a challenge during the run. 
uh, and a, a good friend of mine called Lindsay um, recently reminded me the difference between being interested in something versus being committed to something. And when we're interested in something, um, well, it's pretty easy to wane in motivation uh, and to find all the reasons why the easiest thing to do is to quit when obviously you find yourself out for over five hours a day trying to get the miles in. But when you're committed to something, there's this acceptance that it's not always going to look great. And I have found what I've relished through this experience is the commitment to a challenge that is not easy, but I know that I am mentally getting stronger as well as the foundation of, you know, the physical strength um, by seeing it day in, day out. That aside, I'll be looking forward to the end of the month and to be taking my miles a lot more, um, well, in moderation with, with rest days in between. So enough of that, uh, I now actually want to introduce my next guest, and that is the incredible Jared Byrne. Now, Jared Byrne has a lot of different things and titles to what he does. He's a pro dancer, he's a choreographer, he's a Dancing with the Stars pro dancer and has performed in the last five seasons of the show. He's a wedding dance choreographer, which is how I first got into contact with him when my husband and I, Mark Wales, uh, were learning how to do a dance routine for our wedding. He's a keynote speaker, he's an instructor, he's a performer, uh, and he also has a business called Fit to Move, which we talk about in the podcast as well. When I started this podcast, it was very much about uh, in the early days interviewing people that I know and I have a connection with. I was conscious that because I couldn't do these podcasts in person, there was this chance that um, if I interviewed someone I didn't know, there just wouldn't be that rapport. And Jared is someone I know the least out of everyone I've spoken to. But I, you know, when you meet someone for the first time and you, you spend short periods of time in their presence and you just feel like you get them. And Jared is one of those people for me. I have a lot of respect for everything that he does, but also how he really represents a man who is willing to share the shit. And when I say share the shit, I mean he's willing to be open about the darkness. And I, you know, there's a lot of um, men in my orbit who, you know, they, they fall into that male trap of having conversations that are more about lightness and the jovial and, you know, just a bit of banter. But we all have things that hold us back. Um, and I think Jared has been willing to share it, at least through this podcast. And I think he does in other aspects of his life. And it's very, it's very therapeutic, I think, for yourself when you acknowledge what is uh, challenging you. But it was also very liberating for other people. And you know, for those who are listening to this podcast, I, I hope you realize that I'm not really interested in people's highlights real. I'm interested in the everyday, the in-between, you know, the mundane, what really makes us who we are. And at the end of the day, we all are battled with similar degrees of insecurity, of anxiety, of fears. And, you know, the things that we do um, are basically based on our circumstances, who we typically spend our time with, and sometimes the opportunities that come our way. It's the stuff in between that makes us who we really are. So, Jared's been a huge pleasure to speak to and I hope you love this podcast as much as I did having it with him. So Jared, welcome to the Sam Gash podcast. I'm so disappointed that we're actually not in person doing this because I love being in your company. But even though we're not together right now, I've got a feeling that you're you're still up in the sky, maybe like hanging from an enormously sparky, sparkly mirror ball. And uh, 
I think we can't like deep dive into this conversation without saying an epic congratulations for taking out the wind for Dancing with the Stars and uh, how you're riding on that wave still. Yeah, look, it's it's been a actually an interesting time. Everyone's asking, am I still on uh, still on the cloud and still um, uh, on a high from winning? But from winning that uh, that night, which was uh, about two and a half weeks ago now, which was a, a dream come true, to the next day actually looking at Centrelink online, uh, it's been just a, a bizarre thing because with with everything in the world right now, um, it's it's this uh, complete contrast uh, to the excitement from Dance of the Stars. It was an amazing season, but one that was plagued with a whole lot of things that really uh, we're not, just not expecting. So it's it's been a, an interesting time, but look, I'm still so grateful for um, the, the whole season that I had and, and the win that I got. I think that sums it up pretty perfectly because, you know, I think we all went into, you know, the beginning of a new decade with some big goals. And for you, it was to try and take out, you know, the win after being on Dancing with the Stars for, was it four or five previous seasons? Uh, so this was my fifth season. So I've been runner-up twice yeah. uh, in, in previous <laughs> seasons. And so, and, and I, I felt like I had a really good chance with Celia this year because she is every woman. Uh, she is is funny. She's humorous. Um, she wasn't uh, fit or um, active really uh, prior to this. And so uh, she had an incredible brain. So I just knew that with the ability to retain choreography with her work ethic and, and just her natural um, connection with with everyone around her. I, I just knew I had a great chance, so I threw everything I had at it, um, emotionally, physically, mentally, uh, and and then all of a sudden, uh, COVID nineteen comes along and rips away our live audience, and then uh, rips away our ability to connect with so many people around us. And so it was just a, a whole other um, a season that we just all weren't expecting and weren't ready for. And and so I, I'm just glad that we got to finish it. We brought the, the season a week earlier. Uh, and so the finale um, was when the semifinal was. And so thankfully we, we got to finish that night. But I'll tell you what, uh, getting that mirror ball uh, handed to you on, on the finale without anyone clapping other than Grant and Amanda was a very, very bizarre feeling. So Thankfully, we, we've got social media, which we, we had a whole lot of messages flooding through. So um, obviously, there was a lot of people watching and supporting. So that, that was um, uh, at least a, a little light at the end of that uh, tunnel that we had. Oh, you know, like, well, I can just tell you that Mark and I were cheering very audibly uh, for the two of you <laughs> through the entire season. I, I feel like I want to say that we were your number one fans, but I think everyone else on social media would try and take that title as well. Um, you guys were a very likeable couple. Um, Celia was, I think the way you just described it then as the every woman is a perfect way to to sum her up. And in the past, you've actually had some really high profile partners from who probably have a, a lot larger social media following. Um, yep. You've got Ricky Lee, who's, you know, the singer, Olympia, the actress, you know, Ash, who had just come off the back of, you know, a really successful time on My Kitchen Rules and Jacinta Campbell, who's, you know, Miss Universe extraordinaire. Yeah. Did you, I mean, those women on paper you'd think would be more likely to be successful dancers. And you said that when you got Celia, you were like, okay, this is my chance. But is that really what you felt when you kind of got allocated to Celia, who's a comedian, you know, no dancing experience in before? What was, was it, what was your real first gut reaction? 
Okay, first gut reaction, I had no idea who she was, um, which is so <laughs> funny because, like, it's obviously Dancing with the Stars, but I, I, I don't really participate in watching a, a whole lot of TV and, and I'm not really intertwined in, in the celebrity world. So there's so many people who I, I actually don't know. So when I got part with Jacinta Campbell, who's now Jacinta Franklin, had no idea who she was. Uh, Ricky Lee obviously knew um, knew of her. Uh, Ash Pollard, no idea. And then Olympia, no <laughs> idea. So I'm, I'm completely oblivious when I come in, which is kind of interesting because I get to meet them as the real them rather than have a preconceived idea of who they are. And and so what's, what's so interesting in getting Celia, as I said, she's the every woman. All the other partners that I have are actually the most beautiful, wonderful people I've, I've ever met. Ricky and I are still very close. Jacinta came to support me last year. Um, Olympia and I still talk and, and we developed such a great friendship. And, and Ash and I were, were speaking last week and, and she's – Ash is Ash. She's uh, still volatile and, and fun and feisty and everything else. And, and our partnership was so successful. We made the final, but we, we used to argue all the time. But I still have so many fond memories from that season. But what's so interesting is Australia doesn't like successful women who are pretty who also then all of a sudden, oh, they can dance too. And so what what's yeah. so amazing is that, say, with Olympia, who was – probably one of the, the best dancers um, in the previous season. Um, but we, we dropped out week five and everyone had her pinned for at least the final. Um, but when when there's a 50% voting uh, public, it, it just goes to show that there's just not a lot of support um, uh, for for those uh, those women. So someone like Celia, who you could say is the every woman in the way that um, she makes fun of herself. There's not the tall poppy. And it, it's kind of frustrating as well because I, I feel like we need to get behind everyone. And anyone who's giving um, a, a, an effort towards this show deserves uh, that recognition. But um, just unfortunately, the, the voting public doesn't see it that way. So that, that's where people like Celia or previously Sam Johnson or um, people who don't take themselves too seriously or, or don't look like they're... Um, they're the best answer or, or never pretend that, um, then they tend to do better. But um, look, Celia, by the end of it, looked like a professional dancer. So that's all I really ever set out to do is just to make them the best they possibly can be. Yeah, and that is true. Like Celia was an incredible dancer. I mean, maybe not so much at the beginning, but very quickly. Like I couldn't get my eyes off her. And even though you're the professional dancer, I was captivated by her. And I think she's got obviously a great stage presence. But knowing you, I also know this is a part of the way that you take on your role as that professional dancer. And I wouldn't say across the board it happens with every partnership that I'm watching on that TV screen. Sometimes all I can look at is the professional dancer. How do you allow your, you know, partner to take the spotlight? So you actually just hit the nail on the head with what I aim to do every season. So I've always been uh, a dancer where I want my partner to shine. And this is not just on Dancing with the Stars. This is in uh, my competitive dancing that I, I started when I was eight, that I always wanted to be the, the canvas or the, the guy dressed in black that then uh, had this beautiful woman who would dance around me covered in uh, sparkles and sequins. And, and so I always <laughs> wanted to find the best way that I could 
put them as the focus and put them on show because if I could highlight them and put them as the focus, then I'm obviously doing my job, which within a, a partnership is leading. And so if I'm leading well, then I shouldn't be getting the, the focus or the recognition. I should actually, as, as a partnership, be getting that recognition through uh, how I'm leading uh, my partner. So when, when it comes to all, all the partners that I have, I actually work a lot on trying to figure out who each individual is and what what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, where a lot of the time the, the mental blocks are coming. And so it, it all comes back to your ability to teach and your ability to connect to a person and your ability to understand energy and also find what their greatest assets were. And with Jacinta on my first season, I had no idea how to do the show. I knew how to dance, I knew how to teach, but not to the level of what I'm doing now. And so I, I started to figure out that the the normal process that you you do in say competitive dancing doesn't apply and so this is where my teaching style really changed because i wanted to find out the the quickest way to hack in and unfortunately for all my dance partners it's through the brain and through all the blocks or the 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 trauma or the fears or everything else like celia had a fear of being lifted she was happy to do a spin on the ground but anytime i held her or picked her up off the floor she would run away and run out of the studio so it was <laughs> dealing with a lot of those things and it comes back to so many things uh, so many things from their childhood or through their experiences in in life or adulthood and I never really care exactly what it was that, that's impacted. That's not the focus. It's actually trying to just get back to that and figure out how I can get them past so that they, they can trust me, that they know I'm on their side and what I'm pushing them to do is, is within their capability. So I'm, uh, I think Celia called me um, the Gordon Ramsay of dancing where um, I'm kind of mean but with good intention. So, um, yeah, so that, that was, that, that's sort of how I, I, I tend to approach it. And, look, I, I've had some amazing results and I think everyone will see, um, like with Celia, the ability was always there. It was just me helping her realise how brilliant she actually was. I think, um, you know, what I love about that is I think it actually requires you to be able to drop a lot of your own ego in that process for you to want to, yeah, because I mean, I think as a lot of performers, I think you're wired to think that success in that space is based on people watching you. Mm-hmm. So it must, I mean, it's interesting that you say that you've, you're even like that when you're doing ballroom dancing. What? How, where does that come from? Like, where does that desire from your background to let the other person shine over yourself come from? Actually, I think it's from my father. So this is going back, and I've, I've done a lot of self-analyzing over the years and um, through many reasons. Um, but what my dad was amazing at doing was uh, giving me belief and confidence in myself, which no no other person had done. But what I didn't realize until later was that he actually never believed in himself, but he had this way of, of convincing myself and my, my siblings that we could achieve what we wanted to achieve, that we had to work towards it, that we had to believe in it. And all he ever did was was gave us love and compassion towards that. And so it wasn't making us work hard or like a 50 sit-ups or what. It was just this constant. Uh, constant belief and love that sort of existed and I think that's where my desire to help or to empower other people whether it be my partner or the people who I teach uh, I I think that's where that sort of uh, stemmed from. 
Oh, well, your dad's a very amazing man for oh, passing that on to you. Yeah. Whether he intended, I mean, like he may not know that. So I encourage you to share that with him because I, I've got this thing where people often tell me like um, positive things about other people, like not just in yep. this podcast, but just in other aspects. And yep. I always go out of my way to tell that person. They're like, I had no idea that this, that person felt that way about me. And I was like, yep. if we just spend a bit more time letting people know the influence that they've had on us, it's, mm-hmm. I think it's charging. Like it's a really cool thing. And I mean, it goes without saying that you did just have an incredibly unique and bizarre experience with Dancing with the Stars because, you know, Dancing with the Stars, as you would imagine, there's a lot of physical contact and we were going through this societal experience where you had to socially distance from each other. And I'm wondering how you guys felt about how did you wrap your head around the fact that you're doing dancing, which requires Mm -hmm. you to touch another person when society is telling you you can't touch someone else? Yeah, look, I've made a career of teaching people how to touch and hold each other and 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 so this whole uh, social distancing thing has just completely turned my world upside down but I think with Dancing with the Stars why I felt comfortable about it is that generally speaking and, and, and in this case as well I spend more time with Celia than I do with my girlfriend my kids and my whole family combined in a week so wow. the fact that I'm, I'm actually spending more time with her uh, that, than anyone else we train anywhere from six to eight hours a day and then on the show uh, show days where we're there for about 12 or 13 hours so it, it, the social distancing from everyone else was kind of weird and and especially in, in the arts industry and in dancing we're all very physical in the way that there's hugs and there's um, kisses and, and so we're all very tactile in, in that way so to remove that that thing that we all find such connection through was was just a complete shock and and so bizarre for us to to try to continue the season on that way but the the show we found the first night we did it without an audience really connected with people at home because everyone's lives had changed but yet we shared that little bit of joy and light and and continued the season on so there, there was a bit of backlash from from different people where people at home were having to social distance but obviously we we don't look like we're performing on tv but behind the scenes and everything else it was very very strict and the the hygiene was strict and we're being tested like uh from a nurse like every probably two hours uh with our temperatures and making oh sure God. that we're fine and so because if one single person from the the cast or crew which there's about 160 people uh including the the celebrities if one person contracted it, the whole show would be shut down in a second. So there, there was so much uh, riding on it um, from, I, I suppose, the producer's point, but also just keeping that show on TV. I mean, Celia's charity that she was, you know, vying for the mirror ball um, to win $50,000 was for Safe Steps, um, which is a family violence response centre in Victoria. And yep. I feel like it could never be more relevant to be raising funds and awareness for that charity because do you know what the rates of domestic violence have increased since we've kind of been in lockdown mode? Well, I I think they're they're trying to find, okay, so this is the scariest thing and we're speaking to the CEO uh, maybe a few days after or a week after um, and Celia had a conversation with her and what the concern is is that, uh, safe steps calls have dropped and the, really? the yeah and and so the reason for that is that 
the, the partners are actually stuck at home. So they don't have the ability to call while they're at home and call and speak to someone. No privacy. So the, yeah, the privacy has gone. And so that's where there's super concern because obviously, like if you think about the, the stats, but if you're bringing uh, those people and say, uh, like from a, a man who's lost his job, whatever it might be, and he's at home and what he normally finds his purpose at, now he's at home drinking or the, the frustration, the anger, the stress, all of those things build up. And so that's where they're, they're extremely fearful in that time because rates are obviously going up. I, I don't know what the stats are right now, but this is where the, the charity just became even more relevant within this time because it's, it's a really scary time for so many reasons, whether it's just um, for people's own personal mental health, but for domestic violence, it's just super scary. And I, I think all of us have either family or friends who have been touched by it. I do, and and recently I do, and and I never knew how much it would impact me. And um, and, and and it is scary. It is really really scary. Yeah, I, I feel what Celia and yourself were uh, quite good at is is doing that advocacy role at the same time as, you know, learning, you know, teaching the dance steps and performing. I feel you could tell that Celia was very passionate about the charity that she was supporting. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's not just raising the funds, it's the awareness and it's the reminder to those people that are at home that are expect, um, uh, that are receiving domestic violence that they have lifelines yeah. and that it's not acceptable and it is fearful. I think I, I heard the stats were like 20 to 30% like increase of domestic violence since everyone's been trapped at home. And, yeah. you know, there's obviously this huge health crisis that's going on right now, but we can't ignore the fact that the mental health crisis uh, and the other damages that are occurring um, because of our new societal responses um, exist and so I feel we're going to come out of this time with some blessings and learnings about ourselves, but there's going to be a huge process of, I don't know, like mental management that we're going to need to do to, to, to deal with what happens in, during this time. Um, yep. And you're, you're in Wagga right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in Wagga. So my, my mum and dad have a, a property up here which has a whole uh, lot more space than my beautiful apartment in, in Melbourne. I love it there. But um, if I'm constricted there with my two kids um, who I uh, have um, a percentage of the time between my uh, ex-wife and I, um, I, look, if I was in Melbourne with them right now, I'd be pulling my hair out. So thankfully, I've got a bit of space and, and animals and uh, activities uh, to keep them entertained. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to talk about Wagga because you're obviously, you're more than just a professional dancer on Dancing with the Stars. There's like many facets of, of what you do and you have one of the um, most hectic schedules of anyone <laughs> I know. And that says a lot, but yeah. I want to kind of like tap into like Jared as the kid because you grew up in country Victoria, Wagga Wagga, and you started dancing at the age of eight. And I'd love to know how you got into dancing. Was it something that you really wanted to do or was your sister doing it or were your parents kind of encouraging you to do it? No, so not a single person in my family danced. It was actually a, a guy by the name of Peter Monteleone who his, uh, his parents were uh, Italian, obviously with that last name, but they forced him yeah. to, uh, to uh, learn ballroom dancing. And so he was my mate in year one and year two and asked me to come along um, for support. So I went along and I, I'll never forget, I, I ran out the first day crying because the, the teacher at the school was, <laughs> was snapping orders at the kids and I was so scared and petrified because I was stepping outside of this 
the the comfort zone that I'd always had, uh, say on the touch football field or the soccer field. And um, and but then I, I called him that night and said, "Oh look, I'll go back the following week." And went back and I, I was just really enjoying it. That I, I was lucky that at my time there was three other guys that were similar age to me who were all doing it, and uh, I, I developed some amazing friendships and. Um, Peter quit to play footy I think after one or two terms and naturally just as a, as a kid I, I wanted to follow and so I said to my dad who actually was a, uh, a rugby league player and a, an Australian touch player as well so he's very successful in, um, in, in football uh, and he said look uh, I want you to do this one competition that we've paid for and after that then you can decide and I complained and whinged but he, he made sure that I kept dancing because for some reason he felt that there was just this greater connection and and uh, I I kept going. I did this competition and I, I've just never had more fun. And ever since then, I've just never wanted to stop. I've been addicted to it and connected to it. And I was always average at every other sport, but dancing for some reason just made sense to me uh, from the music, from the uh, retention of choreography, but also the, the creation uh, of things. And I just catch my reflection anywhere I could in the house. Mum and dad have a lot of windows uh, at the back of their house. So <laughs> at night time, I was just always staring at myself in, in that reflection. So um, yeah, you, you, I was that weird kid in the shops that was looking at himself in the mirror and doing some dance moves like Michael Jackson. Does, did, does Peter like try and take credit for the fact that you're still dancing oh, today? Look, I, honestly, I don't even know. Uh, Peter and I didn't remain close friends so I, I wouldn't even know if he he knows or remembers this story he probably remembers he danced at one point but I couldn't tell you where he is or I, I think someone told me he was living up in Queensland but I, I, I just think it's such an interesting story because personally and, and knowing so much about my character before then and, and things I've been interested in I, I was meant to be in the arts it was just that I grew up in a country town um and didn't really have the exposure so it was just by luck and chance that I sort of fell into this and then developed a love for it and and then that love turned into um, a whole lot of work and, and dedication towards it over years and and because growing up in a country town I didn't have access to uh, I suppose international or or, or what uh, the, the best coaches in the world and so once I went to Sydney I started learning a whole lot more and, uh, and and so I probably blossomed a lot later than a lot of um, kids or teens would uh, and it wasn't probably until my early 20s that I started actually seeing some I suppose like international or Australian scale results with that. That's interesting so like you're from a country town and I could be completely wrong with this maybe presumption but you know what was it perceived like for you know a young guy in a country town to be you know committed to the dancing scene oh i i according to every other male and, and female i was gay so it's like it's, it's just that stigma especially back in the the 90s and then if you go before like back in the say 40s to 60s even 70s dancing wasn't didn't have that stigma but the the australian way just has this real negative towards towards dancing and, and before youtube and everything else where dancing became much much more i suppose popular um yeah because i was a dancer i was, I was definitely gay so i used to get bullied in primary school and even high school but luckily i i had an interest in hip-hop and some other styles as well so that was considered a bit cooler so i i just put my my head down into that because that's was my saving grace but my, my love was always boring and always Latin dancing and so 
uh, yeah, it, it was hard traversing that because being bullied, like there's so many times I wanted to quit and like even my best friend, I remember telling him, I think it was in year eight in history class that I wanted to be on TV and choreograph for a, uh, a, a pop star one day. And he bet me 10 grand that I wouldn't. So that, it just goes to show that like even my best friend didn't believe that any of that was possible. So for some strange reason, I just kept going and never stopped and um, jokes on him, but he's never paid up, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is a big like jump from, you know, what you would have been experiencing in the dancing scene in Wagga Wagga to, to where you are now. There's like a lot of things in between that's made your trajectory what it is but you've tapped onto now like two ingrained Australian stereotypes like the first one was obviously about this tall poppy syndrome of you know successful and I won't just say successful women but I'll say you know successful men who are and women who are confident who look good who show a a talent and aptitude in a lot of of different fields we like to cut them down um, which is something I really hate and if I ever notice it in myself I'm really quick to check on it Um, but then there's other one of these limiting societal views on people who are um, connected to the arts, particularly if you're a guy. Yep. And the, the the stigma that you must have attached. And was that, you know, part of the reason why you wanted to leave Wagga, you know, when you were quite young? Or was it more you wanted to leave Wagga because you wanted to pursue, you know, dance as a profession and Wagga wasn't the place for you to do that? Yeah, it's a combination of those things. I, I think for me I've always just been connected to the city and the ocean, but um, I've always thrived on on energy and and Wagga. I, I'd sort of grown out of that because there, there wasn't enough stimulus or um, exposure that that I could get. So for for my dancing, that I wanted to further it. So I, I started looking for as much information as I could, and uh, Sydney's where I went first. But yeah, it's it's interesting when you talk about the stereotypes because, like, obviously the tall poppy one's quite interesting. That we always want need to talk ourselves down and always bring ourselves back just that little bit because if you're to be confident and, and happy about an achievement then uh, most people will think you're you're up yourself so it's it's really interesting but the stereotype um, for men doing the arts or just even the arts in general in in this day and age right now with what we're experiencing uh, with isolation and, and the impact that it's had on so many occupations and jobs and uh, and industries the art sector has disappeared completely so that, like yeah. we we perform to audiences whether it's through comedy uh whether it's through theater stage if you think about television we can't produce tv shows because you're talking about um 200 or 100 people within the cast that all of these things can't exist and then we're the last people to be thought about within any stimulus packages or anything like that but what's so interesting is right now everyone's at home asking their friends for the best netflix or the best show that they can watch or what can i watch on youtube and all of these things whether it's through visual art or uh acting performing singing all of these all of these things are from the arts so everyone's at home needing to be entertained and stimulated from the arts yet we don't get the respect so it's it's just always this bizarre thing and um i've seen a few posts one from eddie perfect just recently who was uh was saying is it is it that the fact that the word arts is is um difficult for people to comprehend like should we call it something else but yeah it's it's just really interesting the stigma that that comes with it and and even from my own family or my, my grandma was asking at one stage when i was younger when i was going to get a real job 
So it's it, look, thankfully that's all changed, and, and I've, I've been a, a professional in the industry for thirteen years. But it's um it's a very very interesting uh, thing to traverse when you're um, a young kid coming through, and and it has the stigma it has. Well, it's an it's an ingrained perception, even with educated people. So um, we, you know, I and my husband Mark, we first met you when we did our dance lessons yep. uh, for our wedding. And, You're perfectly um, high match, by the way, you guys. Like, oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, we're ridiculous. For those who haven't seen myself and Mark standing next to each other, which you probably wouldn't in photos because we're never standing next to yeah. each other, Mark's six foot three, I'm 4'11.5". So we looked ridiculous at the altar together and probably challenging for Jared to choreograph a routine together. But I remember when I told Mark, okay, we're going to do dance lessons. You know, I obviously instigated it. Yeah. And Mark was like, okay, I was like, this is cool. Like, this is something different for us to do. And it would be fun for us to just spend some time together because we were traveling a lot for work. And Mark was like open-minded, but he was like, oh, do we really have to do five lessons? And there was a bit of a complaint. And then he met you and I think he must have had it embedded in his mind of what it would be like to be taught to dance by a man. And then he met you and he's like, this guy is so cool and he's fun and he's got swagger and he's masculine and very quickly it changed Mark's perception of that experience to learn a new skill. There was like an opening to it. And um, I mean, even if you weren't those things, it's not a negative thing either, but I think we are very close minded um, from the outside of what it's like to enter into the art space. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really interesting. And and the stigma you're talking about, I've obviously been teaching wedding dancers for probably 14 years now and it happens the same story has happened with nearly every couple where the 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 woman in most cases has instigated the the desire for lessons and then the guy will come in expecting this guy in a I don't know a bow tie with like uh high pants on and shiny shoes and and you walk in and I'm probably in a beanie or dressed more uh, inappropriate than you guys for the lesson. Um, and, and I've got I, know, I felt like food. we had to dress appropriately. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it. So it's, it, it's really interesting. And, and I, I think that's the thing that I've really wanted to uh, like inspire and, and try to educate it and, and change that stigma because like men dance and, and when, when kids can sort of look up to someone like me or, or friends um, who are on Dancing with the Stars that they can see that, you like a, a guy who has played football like I, I've done every sport you can imagine but I, I, I choose dancing and, and there's such masculinity and, and the thing that I've learned which is what I'm so passionate about which we'll probably get a chance to talk about is is teaching uh, kids in schools and, and giving them the confidence to connect and communicate with the opposite sex and the the power yes. in, in being able to uh, understand um, like space or hold a, a girl's hand and, and turn them and move them like the the actual confidence that it gives you even just communicating with the opposite sex or, or with older people younger people doesn't really matter that that's what's been that's been what has I suppose propelled me and, and is the reason that I've been successful because I, I've, I've I've developed so much confidence from from dancing uh, and I've just been around everyone you could possibly imagine and um, it's just such an open world. So uh, it, it's really nice when, say, someone like Mike comes in and, and you can see the, the moment that their mind changes and they spin you or they dip you and then they just feel like like a man, like like powerful because they're, they're making you happy and it's this amazing way for you guys to connect as well. 
I'll never forget this moment where like he told um, Mark to spin me out and he did it with like quite four <laughs> and you and then <laughs> as you know like he thinks because he's the one that's kind of leading that move and then you kind of did it and I was like oh that was so much easier and you said it doesn't take much um you just got to direct it yep. the woman will go if you lead her you don't have to forcefully yep. do it and that that I think that resonates and is so is a powerful analogy for like the relationship and intersection in a really healthy manner for uh, men and yep. women and it does make me think about like the work that you do with Fit to Move, which you kind of alluded to before, which is where you're trying to embed into like an Australian school curriculum where young children um, can learn how to dance with some of the best choreographers in Australia mm-hmm. and learn the life lessons beyond just the technical skills of what dance actually has to afford us. So can you, can you give me a bit of an understanding of like how did Fit to Move start and, and how challenging is it to try and get something like this into the school curriculum? Yeah, so it actually started my, my primary school from, uh, from Wagga Wagga um, called me when I was about 18 and I'd just done So You Think You Could Dance, which is a, a – a dance, Did yeah. I, I didn't make. I didn't. I am going to go. Yeah, back. Oh, I didn't yeah. make the top twenty. I made the top forty. I was the. I was. I was actually twenty first in the third season. Third season. So I, I just oh. missed out. But even just people seeing my face on TV for ten seconds was the biggest thing. And so I, I went back to my uh, my primary school and I taught some hip hop workshops because trying to get. Uh, I think at the time the school had about 400 kids in it, trying to get that many kids to dance together in a partnership just wasn't going to work. So I took some cool music and I, I put my hat on and some cool shoes and went back to the school and and with how I structured the class and, and how the kids responded, teachers came up to me and said they've never seen classes controlled in that way before and, and so responsive on the whole scale. And and so from that it really inspired me to – that. Dancing, like I, I was taught dancing in school, but just by one of my teachers and with no disrespect to them at all, but they're not trained dancers in any way. So it's like someone trying to like teach you swimming, but it's never swum. So it's it's yeah. it's where like I, I really wanted to get into schools and within the curriculum, there exists the, the need to learn how to move, how to move to music, to understand um, how to turn and, and the agility and all of these things really help and and impact every sport so I I go in with the aim to inspire kids to move inspire kids to dance and to change the stigma that exists around it I don't need kids to walk out there wanting to be a professional dancer but if I can inspire them just a little even to want to do more within what they love whether it's football netball soccer I, I don't really care but my, my main aim is to, to get in there, to inspire them to move, to show them a love for dance. And then through that, then I start introducing ballroom and Latin, which is partner dancing. And what we were speaking about before, which is domestic violence, I truly believe that the issue within a lot of schools these days is that there's no, there's no touching or, or hugging or things that are really – there's really fine lines about all of, uh, all of contact. And this is – pre-COVID this is just in school so to a boy and a girl hugging in school like will be stopped or, or whatever it might be and each school has different rules but within dancing and if we if we if we integrate dancing and boring dancing and partner dancing kids are then taught how to respect the opposite sex how to hold their hand how to not squeeze or twist it or or and and, and understand the power that they have by actually being 
kind and uh, respectful to each other. And I feel like if that can be imparted, even just in a small way, that the impact that it can have on domestic violence later down the track, because instinctually or, or like within each guy is the desire to connect with a woman. But if that hasn't been fulfilled for 18 or 20 years, then generally that's going to come out in a negative way. So I, I really want to get into schools and try to uh, educate kids in a really safe uh, manner, but a really fun way, how to respect the opposite sex, how to dance together. Um, and I think there's there's a really uh, big positive in doing that. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And my first insight from that is how important is it that our educators are passionate about whatever they do? Because I, you know, you're right. Like if you're coming into a school passionate about dancing, yep. And whether the kids take on that desire to dance, what they see is someone loving what they mm-hmm. do. And that is powerful. Yeah. So it shows them like whatever you do in life, you're going to be successful if you're connected and passionate about it. And then the second thing is I really agree about um, young children having that opportunity to have positive um, connections with each other in those early formative stages. Yeah. And you're doing it through dance. And, and I learned it in another kind of experience is, you know, I do a lot of work um, in the social impact space and particularly looking at personal safety and protection. And I used to really focus on this fear of, you know, improving access for girls to go to school. And then I realised, and I do it a lot in um, like developing countries and I've, I've done a lot of work in India. And, and what I learned is if I only ever advocate for girls to go to school, um, I'm going to hit another roadblock because then the the line of thought will maybe do girls just go to school in a single sex environment. But the question should actually be is girls and guys should learn to interact with each other in that positive space from a young age because then they learn to understand each other. There's like respect and understanding and compassion and and if you isolate them from each other, um, from those really formative ages, that's when things happen down the track. And so I can totally see how teaching a young boy or a young man to put his hand around a girl's waist, like gently with care and respect, shows him the positive reaction that he gets from that female when he does it like that versus when he applies, you know, too much pressure and it comes from aggression or testosterone or all that other kind of stuff. So I I really advocate what you're doing. And, and obviously we're in interesting times right now where you probably can't go into schools and do this, but what's your bigger plan for Fit to Move? Like how do you want that to roll out? Well, like even if we talk about this time that we're in now where we're social distancing and, and kids for turn two, like I know my, my two kids, I've, uh, I've got two girls who are five and six and they're in kindergarten and, uh, and year one in New South Wales. And and they're, they're not able to go to school in turn two. It's all going to be online. So even if I look at the, the fitness aspects for kids and, and their ability to move and connect, like if you're to tell kids to do push-ups or squats, they're, they're not interested in that. And the way to get kids moving is music. Kids respond yeah. to music. And it doesn't have to be perfect dancing and technical or anything like that. All you need to do is inspire. So my focus now, and it's it's been escalated quite quickly because of this change, but I really want to get uh, a, a lot more of my programs online so that schools have the ability to access them because if I can connect to the kids through their school portals where then part of their day is actually to break it up because if you've got them sitting at home in a space that's normally their play space or their bench where they eat dinner, it's going to be really hard for them to focus in that way. So if you're breaking up the day and giving them an outlet and some exercise and a way that 
then they can actually film themselves at home uh, and, and show their, their classmates or, or be on a Zoom session where all the kids are dancing, then, then that's already a positive thing that when they come back to school, what they're able to do is to connect to each other and, and that, that's going to continue to follow on. How's um, the balance of looking after the girls whilst trying to create, you know, this content? Oh. How are you managing it? <laughs> Look, it, it's it's basically impossible, and and I think the thing that I've found and what this time's given me is, we're we're constantly rushing and, and needing to urgently do everything. And the the reality is is that however many years I'm on this earth, if I'm constantly rushing, I'm not going to actually get that time. So I, I'm I'm not setting myself timelines that I usually would, and I'm not setting myself like dates that I, I'd usually have to finish something by. Because if I do that, if I put the pressure on myself then something else is going to be sacrificed, which is the, the, the time with my kids. And and so within this yeah. time, this is actually a really unique time. It's going to drive every parent mad. We're all going to go insane at some point. But at the same time, it's it's this beautiful opportunity that we actually haven't had for many, many years. And I, I suppose back in the, the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, when women weren't allowed to work in most cases, that they were home with the kids. But... For a whole lot of men, uh, like obviously the, the times have changed recently, but a whole lot of men don't really have that that quality time with their kids during the day. And so maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months, but right now I'm actually just wanting to really engage with them as much as I can and, and just be involved because honestly with the program that I want to create for kids, the, the, the best way for me to learn is just to look at my own and see what they need, which is mm. just focus, attention, uh, movement, exercise, and love. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, you haven't seen much of your girls over the last two months, have you? No, I haven't been allowed. So, uh, as I said before, my my ex and I are, are separated. Uh, she lives in Albury, which is the uh, the, the border uh, with Wodonga on uh, New South Wales and Victoria. I'm in Melbourne, so we're we're a bit of a distance away. Where with Dancing with the Stars, usually I'd see my kids on the weekend, but the show's filmed on the weekend. But then I'd have the girls uh, come down and watch the show. And they come, came down episode three and they're, they're treated like royalty. They get to sit on the judge's desk and uh, they, they, they get to meet all the celebrities. Like the first season I did, Tina Arena babysit the girls. Um, so it's it's really it's a really a magical experience for them. But with uh, uh, COVID, that uh, no, no one else was uh, allowed to come into the studio. So they weren't allowed to come down. And even with the school rules that they have in New South Wales they weren't allowed to cross the border um, otherwise they'd have to go into isolation before they came back to school so uh, unfortunately I hadn't seen them for two two months so it's just been a really uh, oh, nice week so far spending with them and and every morning they they join me for yoga uh, in the mornings which is really cute and I've just been teaching some handstands and everyone always asks do I teach them dancing but I I try to avoid giving any structure to it I just want to Put on music and I move like an idiot and so I, I don't try to teach them a specific way to do things because I feel like if I do that that I'll push them further away from it where if I show them that I love doing it and inspire them through that way they can make their own minds up if they want to learn more. Yeah I mean I've had a few of my other guests have been single mums and I think it's nice to get you know the understanding from uh, you know, you're a father, you don't get to see your, your children as much. Like how, how have you found, um, you know, you were obviously with your girls a lot when they were younger and now they're a little bit older and you don't get to see them as much. How do you cope with that? It's, it's really, really interesting because 
uh, when when we split, which was um, two years ago now, uh, my youngest, uh, which is Isabel, she was three. So it's those formative years that, like, in, in after uh, after teaching for so many years, I see the impact of um, either broken families or uh, the lack of one parent exists within a, a lot of people's confidence. And so my my biggest fear was how she would develop. Um, and without that that male influence of the father figure, uh, and and it is so important. I'm really really lucky. Uh, my ex has found an incredible partner um, who is a, a brilliant father figure, and, and he is a father as well. And so we've got this uh, amicable, interesting um, dynamic that uh, I, I get along with my ex, um, and, and she's got a brilliant partner who actually is the perfect father influence and male role model when I'm not around. And I'm, so I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones in that way that I, I couldn't have asked for a better um, stepfather for them. So the girls get um, a, a really uh, great guy. And uh, in, in the times that I don't have my miss and my crazy, and I just miss the energy. I, I'd come home from teaching at late or, or a show at 11 o'clock at night. And even though everyone was asleep, it was the energy in the house and, and that was the purpose that drove me. But when you're coming home and the house is empty or quiet, uh, my girlfriend's a, a performer as well. So we will see each other maybe twice uh, in three months because she might be in Sydney while I'm in Melbourne. So, um, yeah, so it's interesting when you, you really start to miss them and it, it, trying to keep focused and, and work through that uh, is, is difficult. Does there, I mean, the life that you lead is... I mean, I'm going to say intense, but really any world that we're not familiar with can seem intense. Um, But is there a breaking point when you're working such long hours um, in an industry where there's not a huge amount of security and stability tied into it? Like, how do you you kind of navigate through that world? Or is it the only world that you've ever known? Oh no! So I've I've worked every job you could possibly imagine. I did my uh, started my certificate in hospitality. I worked in finance for five years, um, and then I also worked in construction. So uh, how that works within my timeline is very interesting. Um, but I, I'd work three or four jobs at a time because when you're starting out as a performer, there's no money. No one wants to employ you. You've got no reason why anyone would pay you for a show. So you, you're doing shows that are the smallest pay, but um, every other job that I would take would would was just to try to um, survive through that. But within the time, it's it, because I had an incredible upbringing. I my um, I, so I have a gambling problem that I, I've I've had since I was eighteen, and I it took me forever to figure out why it existed because I didn't have a, a tough childhood or or anything else. But what I found was through all the stress that I was accumulating that I never acknowledged that I needed an outlet and an outlet that disconnected me from everything. And so it was my way of dealing with emotion that I actually never dealt with through this medium. And it only started as something small, but my breaking point happens and it happens in a massive scale uh, where I'm, I'm lucky now. And I know I just jumped into a, a massive discussion, but the, the, the impact no, that's that how it... it- how yeah. it always starts. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's it. And so it was probably, it's been nearly a year since since I've gambled, but the last time was 
was the worst time where I, I basically lost everything. And the last two years for me has been probably the most successful on paper from a uh, Dance of the Stars, um, I've choreographed five shows, I've um, performed on the Opera House stage, uh, I, I recreated a, a $2 million show uh, of dirty dancing. So on paper, people would think I'm, I'm living the best life and, and have achieved everything everyone would want to do. But underneath that, I, I had the, the biggest torment and the biggest struggles that I've ever, ever had. And that's through um, uh, a marital breakup and, and working out how to be a single dad within this, um, uh, trying to traverse uh, like a, a new relationship and, and yeah, and, and gambling snuck back in. And it's something that I've always been plagued with and, and always really struggled. And it'll be something that's with me forever. It's just trying to manage it and understand the signals because I've just always been someone who continued working nonstop and never took a break. And the, the breaking point um, never really happened in public. I'd always hide it behind and, and throw it into there. And then at the end of it, I'd have to pick myself up and, and call family being ashamed and, um, and uh, a shell of a human. It's, you know, I, I'm always like really, I'm really privileged when someone opens up with something that one may have stigma, people might see as a failure. You might perceive it as a failure within yourself, but really it's just a part of your life. Did, do you remember the point when you realised that you had a problem with gambling? I, I honestly reckon it was early. Like I, I, I think I might have been 18 or 19 when I knew that there was this hunger and I could never really place why I, I wanted to keep going back. And obviously, like all forms of gambling are designed in such a, an incredible way that um, hooks you in like any drug or any food or any other kind of addiction. Um, and so I, I think what, what I found was that it... Like I, I've always liked math, so it was this mathematical thing. Um, and then um, I always desired like nice things or money. And so when you'd win, the rush and adrenaline that you'd get um, would sort of spur you on and then um, you'd become attached to that money. So when you lost it, you wanted it back. And then you'd be sad that you lost mm. the money. And so the only thing that made me happy was gambling. And so the cycle was born and I, I just realised that it sort of continued on. And I kicked myself at times with, the impact it's it's had over the years, uh, and like the impact it's had to my career, because it, it's that distraction of the the lack of um, lack of focus or finance and and the um, emotional trauma that you experience from it that that's made things really really difficult. Is it exacerbated when you're emotionally low, or is it something that is like you're, you've always got it there? You always want to do it in the good times, the bad, the in between. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it's interesting. Like it's happened differently. I think the last time was was probably um, through burying a lot of emotional things and and burying a lot of stuff with um, with my kids or with work or uh, and and because I always take on more work, I think um, it, it was yeah, it, it was just when I was completely depleted and and on uh, in person, no one would ever know because I, I always bounce around with a whole lot no of energy one would know. no no and that's yeah. it like I've always been brilliant at covering it up and I think when I started speaking to um, people about it that I realized that a whole lot of other successful people or just normal people um, go through these battles every day so it started making me realize that I wasn't the only one and I didn't have to be ashamed of it 
but it was something that I needed to be aware of and, and needed help for. So um, I, I'm always happy to speak openly about it. It's not something that I've put out publicly uh, a lot of the time, um, but it's uh, it's definitely been the, the biggest challenge for me throughout the the entirety of my life and career because it's the one thing that's crippled me. Uh, finance is probably one of the biggest stresses and, and I'm throwing money down the drain. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely a, definitely a hard, hard thing to get over. What are some of the strategies that, I mean, you've obviously, you work a lot on yourself. You're very reflective, which is a great thing and I'm sure it's a, a challenging thing at times as well. <laughs> What's in your toolkit of strategies and coping mechanisms that you rely on now to deal with what's an addiction uh okay so the the biggest thing for me is friends and family and i i speak openly about it and i i want everyone around me to understand it i i don't need them to help me in that instant sometimes i may but i feel like if i'm comfortable and not ashamed of it and able to open up and speak about it then People may ask me at random times, how is it going or is it a problem? Or Because it's really easy to hide addiction. I've I, I developed an, an incredible ability to lie about it or to find ways within my day. I, I'd, I'd cancel teaching or lessons and say I was sick or whatever it might be, um, which is completely against my character. But because I never took sick days, then it was easy for people to believe that. So... Um, I think the other thing as well is uh, is, is actually reaching out to uh, real helplines or, or groups or um, uh, other things. It doesn't always work for everyone, but I think there's, there's just the best possible ways to talk to people um, and just be accountable for things. But I think the, you can't ever remove an addiction. Uh, I think it's always you can't just stop something. You have to replace it with something good. And so for me, that's where... Motion changes emotion is is the small slogan that my mm. coach gave to me, and and any time that I'm feeling down, that as soon as I start running or start moving or start training, that automatically I, I've never regretted a training session ever. So it, I hated it at the start, and some days I just don't want to get out of bed. Um, but every time I've done that, that it, it's fueling me with with uh, positive things that gambling might provide me in that short term, but. Obviously, uh, physical training is going to provide me in the longer term as well. Well, I think you're a really fantastic advocate of men sharing and men connecting. Uh, and I think we need more people who are advocates in that space because I know from the male relationships in my life that there is, there's just not that commonality of sharing the challenges. Um, there's more that propensity of talking about things on the surface in the everyday and being light-hearted and I think um, it it doesn't act at a service for men for yep. them to develop and I think by you sharing your story you are definitely giving permission and encouragement for other people to share what's the blocks in their life and hey none of us are perfect we've all got our own shit that's going on <laughs> and yep. you know some things have more stigma and labels than others but they're all you know, they're all dirty and they all hold us back at times. So I love it that you do it. And if I kind of like move to kind of like the last bits, I want to talk about the fitness side because obviously you're, you're physically fit as um, a dancer, but you are like a badass sporting guy in general. And it's interesting that you say that you weren't good at, you know, weren't great at sports growing up. But I've seen your workouts 
on your Instagram story and I know the workouts that you do at like Be Fit and a couple of like months ago you just whacked out a half marathon <laughs> to support the relief um, relief run and I know that you you know on the on the journey of training for a marathon and can you tell and a lot of my audience is obviously runners and like people in the fitness space but I'd, I'd love to hear from you like what does being physically fit and like mobile, mobile and pushing yourself in this space actually mean for you? Yeah, it's it's what well, firstly I'm absolutely blown away that you think I'm uh, an athlete in, in in regards to the people that you speak of and, and, and yourself as well. Um, but I, I think it was two years ago uh, that I, I kind of realised the the dancing world. It's this odd mix between sports world and arts world. And if I look at say football or cricket maybe 20, 30 years ago that guys would just sort of reach over, try to touch like touch their, their hips and the sides and, and touch their toes two times and that was their warm-up. And and how sports developed and the training and everything that um, all, all the codes have done is uh, refined and elite and, uh, and the focus on food and training. And dancing hadn't really had that. And so I'd had personal trainers over the years that had, helped me I suppose develop muscles or strength but I never felt that I was getting it uh, becoming a better dancer and I was so lucky to find uh, this coach uh, on a coaching course I actually did which was still this is actually quite funny that I enrolled in a coaching course which was just uh, AFL coaches tennis coaches and uh, and cricket coaches and like all on elite scale VFL um, they had AFL coaches speaking, uh, sports scientists, and then there was this one lonely boring dancer in there trying to figure out how to be a better coach. <laughs> and and what was interesting is that all all these techniques and tools weren't being applied in our world. And and I, I took so much from that. But there was a one guy there, uh, Jason Stacey, who's a, um, a performance coach uh, for a lot of tennis players, but a lot of different codes. Uh, and he, he's on the, uh, the tennis tour as well and has coached some amazing tennis players over the years. But I met him and I asked if he could make me a better dancer. And through that, the focus wasn't then on muscles or looking good. It was actually focused on um, mobility and speed, agility, flexibility, all of these things. And so my whole training style just completely changed and he can change my mindset which was always kind of there that I, I've always had the ability to just keep going. And like you said, with the half marathon, I woke up one day, I'd never done it, but um, you created the amazing uh, relief run initiative and, and I felt obligated to doing that. Um, and I'm pretty sure I had a bottle of wine the night before. So definitely not the prep that you should have. Um, and, but I, I'd, I'd just been enjoying running. And so I just gave it a go and, and made it which was just so invigorating so I, I've, I've the last few years I've really pushed myself on a fitness scale and and I, I've just wanted to become the best version of myself because what I've found over the years is there's a whole lot of opportunities I've missed out on because I wasn't ready but I didn't know those opportunities were going to be there and what I figured was if I could prepare my mind my body and my ability for absolutely anything that I was then open to every opportunity that came my way. So uh, two years ago, I started training with Jason, pushed myself beyond every limit I have. Uh, and I, I swear I nearly died a few times. But with that, it, it then opened me up to all these opportunities. And what was funny is that people then started knocking on my door. 
and and I found yeah. like I know like people say you're lucky, but I think through that you you create your own luck and and there's things that I I I got that I never dreamed of getting, and it wasn't because I was training, but I think then my energy just reflected and opened myself up uh, to to like this positivity in other jobs and shows and things just started coming through. So yeah, the, the training for me is, is a huge thing. And, uh, and then I've met you through, um, through teaching and then we've gone for a few runs and like, I'm just inspired by brilliant people. So the more people I can connect to through um, different gyms and, uh, and going for runs and, and I'll, I'll give anything a go. So if anyone wants me to come along for some sort of uh fitness thing once we can uh once we can connect and communicate again then I'm, I'm up for it i'm up for a challenge always well i love that because you're the type of people that i love to go let's try this <laughs> and it is i think once you say once you say yes to the unknown it always is going to deepen you like doesn't mean that you're going to say i love that thing but just by being open-minded to try it you just will get a little bit of a greater understanding of you and there's this um do you remember bud tingwell the australian actor Yes. who has sadly departed. So Bud Tingwell, for those who don't know, um, and there's a lot of North American people who listen to the podcast, but Bud Tingwell was this iconic Australian actor um, and he had this mantra that he said to always just say yes. Yep. And he said, when you say yes, you never know um, what opportunities that may lead to. Mm-hmm. And that was his mantra the entire way through his professional career. And he just did everything. Yep. Um, and obviously, like, there's a caveat and maybe sometimes you need to learn how to say no if you've always got a propensity to say yes. But I think it, it, it holds so true to don't be closed-minded, try different things because not only will it give you a new experience, but it does connect you to different people. And so if I didn't say yes to doing dancing lessons uh, with you, I never would have been, you know, intrigued so much by, you know, watching Dancing the Stars and never being so inspired as I was by watching Celia and also being like so intrigued about this thing of what happens when you learn this new skill and how how it unlocks things that are holding us back in other parts of our yeah. life and I think the transformative experience that we watched through the um, non-professional dancers on Dancing with the Stars is what's what what makes that show so compelling. Yeah, yeah. oh thanks well, look I, I think what you're saying is, is completely true I think once once we reach a, a level within our own personal careers we, we um, achieving things that there's not a lot more growth that you can do. There's actually unlimited growth that you can do, but if you're just focusing on yourself and what you're always comfortable at, then the growth is going to be minimal. But then if you expand out to the sides and actually find other people who resonate on the same level from different worlds or whether it be swimming, running, whatever it is. Now, running's not going to um, help me uh, spin faster or, or anything in dancing, but just the change in, in dynamic or just even having different ideas about movement or, or uh, um, uh, cardio or anything else, it, it's just going to um, help your, your own career. So I, I found connecting with you and, and a whole lot of other people has, has definitely um, empowered my career even more. Oh, well, I think you're a bloody legend and um, you're kind of the first person. Oh, stop it. <laughs> stop <laughs> it. You're the first person I've really interviewed that is like quite outside this space and I was really excited to do this because you are a born story- storyteller. You're an incredible communicator and I look forward to where and how you choose to share your story even beyond the dance space moving forward because I think there is a really important lens for what you do. 
Yeah. Oh, thanks so much. That means so much to me. So um, it's been so nice to chat to you. And look, I, I, uh, I'm looking forward to our next run when we're allowed to leave our house. Oh, my God. I can't wait to take you to the Dandong Ranges and to see the tall trees, which are my, you know, natural domain. It'll be nice to have some company. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I can't wait. Our, our last run was so much fun. So um, I'm, I'm feeling fit and trying to, to keep moving. It's just the hardest hardest thing at the moment is, is just not to, trying to eat the whole uh, pantry. So that's that's my greatest challenge right now because I'm um, but come, come 3 p.m., I'm ready for a, a big bag of corn chips. I've become like a chocolate licorice. Like I've eaten so much chocolate licorice over the last week that I'm I'm looking like one now. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So that's why movement is actually critical so it allows us to continue eating as much as we are in our pantry right now. Yeah, thank God for that. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jared. What a guy. I hope you loved that conversation with Jared Byrne. You know, at the very least, took away some insights about you know what it's like to pursue something when sometimes the odds are stacked against you, uh, when you are plagued with things that would hold so many people back uh, and you still fall into the trap of being consumed by it, but you find a way out. And I think that's what's remarkable about Jared. He seeks to find a way to better himself and to pass it on to other people. And he's a pretty special human. So, yeah, I can't wait to see what he does next. Uh, I'm actually taking him out for a run this week. I I wonder if he knows what he's getting himself into, considering it is going to be day 28 of the calendar club. And he thinks that he's not going to come for the whole way. But I think I'm going to try and encourage him to do so. Anyway, um, that's all from me for this podcast. Uh, my brain is a little bit fried right now, so I can't even tell you who is next on the podcast. I've got a pretty epic list of humans, and I'm just going to see which one lines up with the scheduling. But till then, I hope you stay safe and well and connected to the people around you, even if you can't be near them. Cheers. Cheers.